Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe. Hello, Emily. It's great to hear you. It's always the highlight of my week to hear you. And and this week we kind of bifurcated. So I'm really happy that we are back here together for this brief little bit of a chat before we get into our fantastic interviews. We each took one this week and I can't wait to listen to yours. I was so happy to get to talk to Andrew Weissman this week, who we all know for being a member of the special counsel's office. Uh, He's also a law professor. You see him on cable news all the time. He writes fantastic stories in the Atlantic. His Twitter feed has sort of been uh, a real place, uh, truly a real place for us to unpack all of the insanity that has been happening in the myriad investigations that we've lived through over the past, I don't know, half decade. Uh, and this week we got to really pick his brain about that Mar-a-Lago case and what is going to happen, what has already happened, the national security implications of what has happened, uh, whether he thinks this is actually the time that Trump will face the music, uh, what precedent the judge really set that we've now, you know, we've started to see, I think that as we record this on Tuesday, Joe, uh, there was a a member of the Oath Keepers who tried to say he wanted a special master in his case, which would delay his trial. And it's hard to make a legal argument that that is not um, fit if, if another judge just gave that ruling to the president. And this is why these things have consequences. Anyway, fantastic interview. And you sat down with our colleague and friend of the show, Joe Pompeo, this week, to talk books. Is that right? That's right. We talk about his new book, Blood and Ink, which came out this week, the scandalous jazz age double murder that hooked America on true crime. It's really like a a tale of, uh, you know, the birth of the tabloid culture in America. It's like about, you know, newspaper wars in the 20s and a murderer, and it's like fantastic stuff. And we also talk about his new uh, interview with Jan Wenner, who Turns out also has a book this week, a memoir uh, called Like a Rolling Stone. And of course, I would have nothing to say about it uh, as Not his biographer. <laughs> Not a drop. Well, I can't wait to hear them. I also, I will say, uh, if you're going to buy two books from this podcast, pick up Joe Hagen's book on Jan Winner. And uh, more pressingly, read our colleague Joe Pompeo's book. It is absolutely fantastic. It's dishy, oh, yeah. it's fun, it's historical. It really does give you such insight into the tabloid culture that we live in now. It's really such a fantastic read. Before we get into the interviews, Joe, you and I were just talking about our our Senator Lindsey Graham. Our friend Lindsey Graham. Ah, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. Uh, tell me how you're feeling about this. Well, I mean, I just I was commenting a moment ago. He had a press conference today. Everybody's going to be talking about it when they hear this podcast where he's promising that should uh, Republicans take over House and Senate, they will immediately try to ban abortion nationally, which uh, what I was saying is that this is like, you know, a slow arcing softball thrown over the plate to every Democratic candidate who's running this fall. Um, It was sort of perplexing, and a lot of Republicans are already running screaming away from it because they feel like – Lindsay, uh, what are you doing? You let the cat out of the bag. We're not supposed to be talking about that before the midterms, but he went ahead and did it for whatever bizarre reason. I mean, he must have his own machinations that we can't understand just yet. But it's definitely going to be, and it highlights very quickly, that how abortion is going to be one of the big, if not the top, issue in this coming election. And weirdly, Lindsey Graham just underlined that for everybody. 
I mean, truly horrible day for women or anybody who cares about equality in this country, but maybe a good day for the Democrats. Yeah. And and also in the last 24 hours, we learned that they're, you know, in parallel to what Andrew Weissman's going to be talking about today, there's been all of these subpoenas thrown out, maybe like 35 to 40 subpoenas to various Trump, former Trump administration people and Trump aligned people about the big grift that went on around the big lie. You know, the stolen election, you know, campaign for dough, trawling for cash that Trump has been doing, had started then and has been doing ever since. And, uh, you know, we see to see Steve Bannon in handcuffs last week was a reminder that, yes, while Trump has seemed to get away with lots of his criminal, alleged criminal activities, uh, you know, we may be finally seeing the noose close. And uh, I think a lot of us are going to be happy to see if justice can finally be brought where it has been long overdue. Before we get into the interviews, I'm just seeing over the transom as we record this interview that Ken Starr has died at the age of 76. And I'm sure we will see a lot of talk about his role in American politics, American culture over the next couple of days and and uh, just a very interesting moment in history. I think everyone has some sort of connection. And I will say, you know, good timing, Kenneth Starr, because uh, your death basically wraps up in a neat little bow a couple of the, uh, the both the themes of this program. First of all, uh, you know, his report on Clinton was really one of the uh, epic chapters in tabloid culture in America, right? I mean, I've written about this, whether it was the National Enquirer or the birth of cable news, Fox News, you name it. A lot of our media uh, metastasized for the worse because of Ken Starr's activities uh, in the late 90s around Bill Clinton. And then I think you could also point to uh, the birth of a lot of our political atmosphere today came out of that. You know, the birth of all of that. Ken Starr was certainly uh, one of the pioneers of some of the gross political environment we're in today. And I don't want to, you know, you can't draw a straight line between him and, you know, Donald Trump, but you could certainly draw a circuitous one. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll be hearing quite a lot about it in various op-eds over the next few days. That connection point is why we keep you around, Joe. I will also say that my brother-in-law's name is Ken Starr, so I think that this day is especially significant for him. Perhaps he will uh, be less confused or confusing in the days, weeks, months, years ahead. So hats off to, to my brother-in-law. Uh, should we get into the interviews? Let's go. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. We are so fortunate today to be here with Andrew Weissman. I'm sure all of you know him, but 
To introduce him very briefly, he is a professor of practice at New York University Law School, the former lead prosecutor in the special counsel's office, and the former general counsel of the FBI. He is also the author of Where the Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Oh, so excited to talk to you. I have been following your tweets, as I know most people in this universe who care about anything going on in the world right now, uh, with with bated breath, you have been giving such incredibly useful commentary about all the craziness that is going on around the Mar-a-Lago situation and everything over the past few years. So I'm just so grateful to pick your brain about all of that. It's, it's great to be here. It's nice to be in a slightly longer format than, <laughs> than Twitter. Yes. Yes. We, we have always wanted to have you here as a guest and have a chance to pick your brain, but it's especially important to me after we saw Judge Cannon's decision earlier this month to grant former President Donald Trump uh, his request to appoint a special master to review evidence seized at Mar-a-Lago. I hate that it's relevant to bring this up, but she is a Trump appointee, and it feels to me like so many instances lately when it comes around to a ruling, whether it be on uh, a woman's right to choose or this this Mar-a-Lago executed search warrant, uh, we have realized that not only do elections have profound consequences because of judicial appointees, but also we seem to be living in a time when these appointees who are supposed to be just interpreting the law are making political decisions. And I know you have talked about this a lot, and I want to hear uh, your feelings on this today. So I completely agree with you. Um, I don't think it's irrelevant to ask the question who appointed the judge, but you, you'd you like to be able to constantly point to examples that show that it doesn't matter, um, that you, they're just following the law and the facts. And particularly in the lower courts, I mean, let's leave the Supreme Court, which is a big if, <laughs> let's, let's leave that aside because um, it's, it's a different story. I think the lower courts have generally fared really well in being the check and balance that they're supposed to be. And a good example of that is Trump's election fraud lawsuits. And those were unanimously rejected and by judges appointed by Republicans and Democrats and by Trump himself. And that's because it really is a separate institution and you're trained to apply the facts and follow the law and you come to a result that it's, it's usually not that hard, especially in the election case where there was no evidence of, of fraud. So the Judge Cannon decision, you know, it's sort of naive to, to be that surprised, but I, I was surprised at just how much it skewed the facts and the law. Um, just reading the factual part, I knew it was coming because it didn't even do a sort of fair recitation of the facts. It was done in a way that was not just favorable to Trump. It just left out all sorts of facts that were relevant. Um, Can you break that down for me? Yeah. So... There was a whole issue in June of this year when the Department of Justice uh, lawyer and FBI agents went to Mar-a-Lago. And the president, a former president, has been saying, you know, I fully cooperated when they got there. I was very sort of open kimono and, and you know, you can, everything you want to see is fine. 
Well, when we got the government papers there, they said, oh, that's not what happened. We asked to see the um, storage bin and they opened the door and they said, fine, can we see the boxes? And they said, no. So it doesn't mean that the judge had to take one side or the other, but at least recount both sides. Instead, she recounted it as the former president showed them everything. And that's just that's just not the, the factual record that's in front of her. And you know, that is just soul crushing if you're a lawyer who is trained in the rule of law, that you wouldn't have that degree of self-respect and being able to look yourself in the mirror that she wouldn't say, you know what, I'm going to deal with the facts completely down the middle, and honestly, and then then turn to the law. You know, I, it'll be interesting to see what she does. You know, there, as we're doing this, there's a pending motion to have her essentially withdraw the weakest part of her decision related to documents that are marked classified. It'll be interesting to see whether she takes what I view as sort of an olive branch or off-ramp that has been offered by the Department of Justice to her, which is basically saying, look, we are going to appeal that. This is really important. It does have national security implications. There is real harm. And you don't, and the law is clearly on our side. So it'll be interesting to see whether she does the right thing there. She may do it for the right reasons. She may do it because she just doesn't want to get appealed and reversed, or, or she's concerned about terrible press that I think she deservedly got uh, for her decision. But it'll be interesting to see whether she takes that opportunity. It's so interesting that you say that because it has felt so many times over the last half decade that we are in a post-fact universe and that people are allowed to say whatever pattern of fact they want to say and they just make it their reality. They sort of draw this whole universe that's not based in reality. And you would think that the last bastion of actual truth is a federal judge who's writing something in a legal opinion. It's sort of like you can throw whatever spaghetti at the wall outside of that, but that to me felt protected. And as you just described it, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but uh, that, that the post-fact era has entered our courts is a very scary prospect. Absolutely. I still remember uh, Amy Berman Jackson, who was the federal district judge who had uh, the Manafort case and the Gates case and, and others, said in the course of sentencing Manafort, she said, look, this is a place where facts still matter. And, you know, that that is restorative. Uh, you know, I think that one of the points I've made about Donald Trump is that he's a big talker in speeches and used to be on Twitter and now on Truth Social. He's he's not reticent to spin out the big lie in those uh, fora, but there's no consequences from a legal perspective for his doing so. But one thing that's really interesting is that he has not done that in uh, ways that could get him into criminal hot water. Um, mm -hmm. So, for instance, in both impeachments, he never actually said, you know, that's a perfect call or there was no quid pro quo. He never actually said any of that in the impeachment itself. Um, he wouldn't submit a statement to that effect because that has actual criminal consequences. And the, the way that relates to what's going on now is he has not said to the federal court in Florida that he declassified all of the documents. And I don't think he will. 
um, because that is actually a federal crime. Uh, it's 18 U.S.C. For, you, to, for the nerds out there, it's 18 U.S.C. 1001, which is making a false statement to a court. Uh, and I don't think he'll do that. It's He's perfectly happy to make those false statements in a public setting, but not in a setting where there can be criminal ca- accountability. Well, it's so interesting because Donald Trump, long before he was president, even when he was president, uh, has a long history of threatening to sue people, but doesn't actually sue them because I don't think he wants to go through discovery, doesn't want to be deposed. And so it's sort of the same mentality. Yeah, absolutely. I still remember when he threatened to sue the New York Times that I thought the the general counsel of the New York Times wrote this very, very funny letter that basically just said, bring it on. It was like, you, really, you want discovery? Let's go. Yes, I think I think the New York Times joins a long line of people who had that same bring it on mentality. You you brought up Paul Manafort, and it makes me think of the the for those of us who aren't steeped in the the legality of this, the terms special master and taint team maybe aren't second nature. We saw it uh, in the in the Manafort case, and I know that I covered this kind of legal back and forth when I was covering Michael Cohen stuff. Uh, can you just explain to lay people what these things mean and and why they're being battled in the court in this instance? Sure. I've actually been a special master uh, oh, for cool. two federal judges um, in uh, some gun cases that the city of New York brought against a whole bunch of gun dealers. So I've had that experience. Um, So having a special master is unusual. It's it's rarely needed. It is generally uh, the case that somebody thinks about a special master when there's so many documents at issue that the court really doesn't have the time to do this. And so the special thing of the special master is like an assistant to the judge. Because if it's a small number of documents, the answer is, why shouldn't the judge do it? Um, That's what they're there for. And when do you use it? If you are doing a search of an attorney's office and you have not just tens of thousands, but it can be terabytes of data because of things like laptops and phones, and you're dealing with a lot of electronic data, and because you're doing a search of a attorney's office, you could have tons of attorney-client privilege material, not just for the case that you're focusing on, but all sorts of extraneous stuff. So uh, in the Manafort case, for instance, when we did a search, we immediately had, uh, we didn't think we needed a special master, but we did have a taint team to screen out attorney-client communications. And we immediately gave Paul Manafort and his counsel an opportunity to work with the TAME team and flag any documents that they thought were attorney-client privilege. Doesn't mean we have to agree. Uh, Maybe sometimes we did agree, sometimes we didn't, and you work through all of that. And then ultimately, if there's a dispute, you go to the judge. I don't think actually in the Manafort case, we disagreed on anything. Um, It's pretty simple. Um, And so here, the unusual aspect of thinking about a special master here is we're dealing with a tiny, tiny search. When I heard that we're talking about 11,000 documents, I was just thinking, I haven't heard of a search with 11,000 documents since I was a baby prosecutor, because (laughs) we're always dealing with electronic data. So this is just a tiny universe. And the idea that there would be a lot of attorney-client materials seemed you know, far-fetched, and, and apparently we're not dealing with a lot. 
Um, and then obviously there's executive privilege, which is a separate type of privilege. And, you know, the government has made the point that executive privilege doesn't apply in this situation. I agree with that for a whole host of kind of boring legal reasons. And that is the subject essentially of the pending uh, motion to have the judge sort of essentially reconsider her ruling with respect to executive privilege. Mm. It's so helpful to to have that laid out that way. And uh, yes, our our former president is not a lawyer, and so the idea that there is all this privilege material there is nonsensical, even to a lay person who has only briefly thought about special masters and taint teams. It's worth um, noting that. For there to be attorney-client privilege material, we're not talking about the former president's communications with White House counsel, because the White House counsel doesn't represent the president. They represent the office of the president. So there is no privilege, attorney-client privilege there. We're talking about his private counsel having communications with either the, the president when he was the president or now when he's former president. That's going to be a really small universe, if any, uh, that falls into that category. And certainly it wouldn't involve anything classified since um, I don't think his counsel had clearance to engage in those kinds of classified communications. Well, what is clearance when, yeah, the the lines are blurred and there are classified documents being stored in an unsecure location at Mar-a-Lago, which is not the most yeah. secure place to begin with. And that, that makes me think uh, you have said so many insightful things about the way in which this is so damaging for national security, both obviously the president having these documents, but the, the ruling that the judge laid out earlier this month. Can you just talk me through why this has such national security implications? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I don't think people really understand is, let's assume the best case scenario uh, of these facts, which is that Donald Trump has not disseminated any of the top secret information to a third party, and he has not disseminated any of the information in those documents. Let's assume that as a given. We don't know if that's true, but let's assume the best case scenario we are currently being harmed by the fact that these documents are in such an unsecure location. And what I mean by that is we rely so much in the intelligence community on very strong relations with our allies and intelligence communities and our allies, England, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, and with other partners, some of whom cooperate with us but don't want it to be made public uh, because they share the same national security concerns. There's no way in God's green earth that those intelligence communities are not looking at this and saying, we need to think long and hard before we start sharing information with the United States because it's no longer the case that from administration to administration, intelligence communities will operate the same way. Uh, it used to be, whether it was the Bush administration, Carter administration, the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, the intelligence communities had one voice and were consistent. Um, and for countries um, like Britain or Israel to see 
how insecure and erratic an administration can be is, I am positive, having deleterious effects right now uh, in terms of whether information is going to be shared. And just so everyone understands, that information saves American lives. It is, it is vital to our national security interests to have that really strong relationship with our allies and with countries who are willing to take that step of cooperating with us, but doing it quietly. Um, and that I think is very much at risk. You can be sure that that's something that Tony Blinken and Avril Haines, the head of the intelligence community, the head of the secretary, uh, the head of the Department of State, um, are focusing on that right now. Mm. The, the consequences are so clearly grave and you outline them in a way that makes it so easy to understand. But we're talking about a man who has said he could shoot someone down Fifth Avenue and get away with it. And honestly, it seems like he was accurate when he said that over the last five years. He hasn't faced any consequences for any of the destabilizing, anti-democratic, normal raising, law skating things he has done. Do you feel, as someone who has dealt in perhaps ha handling some of his consequences, do you feel that he is finally going to face the music here at all? Um, so two quick answers. So, you know, I come from a family of doctors and to your point about the consequences of his actions, it's very, very hard to see his denigration of science and politicization of COVID and not know that many, many, many people died needlessly um, as a result of his words and inaction. So I, I mean, I know that may sound like hyperbole, but I honestly believe it. I just think it is thoroughly outrageous. Um, and sure. what we're seeing now in Mar-a-Lago is just another instance of that on the national security side. Um, uh, you know, I know it's hard to predict. I actually do think he will face consequences. Uh, I, you know, this is somebody who has spent a, a lifetime of either committing crimes or certainly going up to the line. Um, uh, but I suspect doing more than that. Uh, in the special counsel investigation, we obviously were part of the Department of Justice, so we had this rule that we had to follow, which was we were not able to indict the the president. Uh, a sitting president could not be charged. I actually was a proponent of that being taken up when he was no longer the president. My view was if you have a policy of not charging somebody when they're the president, but when they become the former president, you basically have a policy of let bygones be bygones and let's move on. Then you know what? The rule of law is not applying to somebody who is the president or former president. I think that the conduct here, both on January 6th and at Mar-a-Lago, are so egregious. Uh, and I also think our not that complicated. I mean, I've done a lot of complicated criminal cases. Enron, for example, um, you know, people said that that was sort of calculus to a normal case's uh, geometry. This is just not that complicated. I mean, stealing a bunch of top secret documents and lying about it and not returning them, uh, not a lot of issues there. And there's enormous precedent for many lower level people being prosecuted in similar circumstances or less 
egregious circumstances. So remember, we have at the head of the Justice Department, somebody who is a longtime judge who is going to be looking at precedent. And I think he's going to look very hard at making sure that Donald Trump is treated no better and no worse than other cases. And the one thing I really would like to stress about Merrick Garland is I think, and again, this is just a prediction, but I think he has what is really necessary to this job, which is he has the backbone to make this decision. And that it really can't be underestimated that the how important that is. And I, I think that if he thinks it's the right thing, I think given his background and his upbringing in the law and also sort of his age, um, you know, he's not looking for another job. I think that he, uh, assuming that the investigation is done competently, I think that he will have the backbone to charge. It's so fascinating because there's an argument to be made that charging him would be a political decision and an argument to be made that not charging him would be a political decision. And so to, to have to make that decision is an impossible choice, but it feels like he is the person ready to make an impossible choice. If he is charged, what does he face in the realm of consequences for what he is alleged to have done? So here's here's some maybe bad news, which is as one of the things I tweeted was uh, warning people to keep their eye on the clock. If there is in the next presidential election, if there is a Republican who is elected president, then that president can end the investigation. Uh, if by some chance there was not just an investigation, but an, an indictment and even a trial and conviction, they could pardon Donald Trump if they're federal charges. And so far, that's sort of, I think, what we've been talking about. So there is this escape valve for Donald Trump the longer it takes to uh, hold him accountable. Um, and remember that if, if charges were brought, even if they were brought in the next couple of months, it takes a while to bring a case to trial. Um, so time would be on Donald Trump's side to have that delayed as much as possible. And as we know, that's obviously all defendants, but certainly Donald Trump have that as a you know standard playbook uh, is to delay things. Well, that's why the decision that is coming up as we record on Monday morning about whether or not the Department of Justice will have to appeal this decision, going through a whole different court, I would imagine, would delay this significantly. And that's just on one one issue here. Yeah, I mean, I think they, they did something smart, which is they kind of bifurcated the issue so that the special master can definitely go forward with attorney-client privilege review and non-classified information, assuming that the government decides not to appeal that as well. So they could sort of try and race through, through that piece. But you're right on the documents that they actually care the most about, which is documents marked classified, that appeal could delay things. Uh, the one way in which it might resolve quickly is uh, right now there is a motion to the district court saying, please carve out these classified documents so that they're not caught up in the review. If the district court says no to that, the government can go to the Court of Appeals and say, 
we need an immediate stay of that piece. And that could be relatively quick if they won. Um, If they didn't win, then it's going to be quite some time. You're right. Well, this is so incredibly helpful to hear you break it down this way. And my only ask of you is to come back as we as we work through this and and see every twist and turn here. It's been so valuable to hear your thoughts on this. It would be my pleasure. And now I am delighted to bring on to the podcast an old hand here at Inside the Hive, a hiver a man who lives inside the hive permanently. Joe Pompeo, welcome to Inside the Hive. It's great. I feel like I was just here, so I hope that um, it's not overkill. You're becoming like a, you know, like a barnacle on the ship. You're just here. <laughs> you're here for good, you know? Um, and we love to have you. Thanks for coming on. And it's a special week, a very special week, because you are publishing a book this week. I have in my hot little hands, Blood and Ink, the scandalous Jazz Age double murder that hooked America on true crime. Okay, so let's get into this right away. Congratulations, Joe. Thank you. This is an amazing book for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's super juicy and fun to read. It's a great historical uh, yarn, really about a a murder. They called it the, the Hall Mills case, and there's a lot of details involved in that and a lot of weird characters. Uh, but it's also this, a subplot of it or a kind of overlaid on top of that is the story of the tabloid journalism world as it is exploding in New York in the 20s. And that's such an amazing thing. There's an excerpt on VanityFair.com right now. You can go read it. Joe Pompeo, look it up. And it sort of focuses on the editor of uh, the Daily News, the still existing Daily News and the way they covered this murder. And it's just really fabulous. And just before I start asking you questions about it, Joe, I just want to say that, you know, this book really does something that all great books do, um, historical books, which is that you're reading them, but they really, you can lay them on top of the present, on top of the world we live in today. And it's almost like a 3D effect of having, you know, the red and the blue together. You get a three-dimensionality because you you really see how the world we live in today was birthed a very long time ago. The instincts, the characters, the people are kind of echoes or I should say today is an echo of them, <laughs> right? Yep. And um, it's really delightful in that way. So why don't we start just by this excerpt that you you published. You talk about the newspaper wars of the 20s and this editor, this very influential editor, uh, Philip Payne. Yeah, so Phil Payne is, was sort of a, a pioneering tabloid maestro. He, I, uh, He's my favorite character in the book, I think probably because I relate to him to some extent. He's from New Jersey, just like like I am. Um, he started, you know, at these small little community newspapers and as a young as a young reporter, and he works his way up. He, you know, gets to a bigger paper outside Manhattan. He, you know, keeps climbing the ladder. He does take a little break to go to, not to fight in World War I, because Phil Payne also, some of his, you know, amongst his uh, many, I don't know how I want to say quirks, but character attributes, his physical, um, he had a few physical deficiencies. He was partially deaf and he had bad eyesight. So he, he, he was rejected to go fight and he really wanted to go fight in World War I. 
So instead, he, vo- he volunteered with the Knights of Columbus War News Service and sort of went and, and chronicled it for, for America. So he gets, he gets back from uh, you know, the battlefields of France uh, as the war is wrapping up. He gets a job with a Hearst newspaper in Chicago from New York covering troops returning from overseas. And then eventually he gets the job that changes his life. There's a brand new tabloid newspaper. It's the, it's the first American tabloid newspaper founded by Joseph Medill Patterson, who is of the famous Medill family that, that controlled the Chicago Tribune at the time. He's a wealthy scion that kind of decided to plot out on his own and break away from the family a little bit and create a tabloid newspaper. Back then they called it a picture newspaper right in New York City, this, this cultural and commercial capital. And it launches in July 2019. A few months later, Phil Payne gets a job there and he continues, you know, he's, 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 he's a, a perfect recruit for a tabloid newspaper because he is, he has a mischievous side. Uh, he really understands the art of news photography, which is what the tabloids really pioneered. These were, these were the first newspapers that really focused on the photographs. They were, you know, if not as important as text, maybe even more important than text to the tabloids, you know, these big photos of characters in the, on the front of the newspaper and, and all inside. That was, that was a new, a new innovation. Um, and Phil Payne, he also, you know, had a, a really keen sense of outrageous stories and uh, how to build circulation. And he, and he just did really well. So by, by the fall of 1922, he is promoted to acting managing editor. The other, the other editor kind of got fired for some this isn't in the book, but it was some uh, sort of scandal having to do with some Atlantic City mm-hmm. beauty contest, which is another, you know, there's a lot of that sort yeah. of 1920s color in the book. But anyway, Phil Payne gets the, the biggest job in the newsroom on this trial basis. A week later, this murder case in central New Jersey breaks and the Daily News and the rest of the country go completely wild with it. And Phil Payne, he's, he's there from the start putting his best reporters on this case. And, you know, over the course of the next four years that this, this mystery would play out, he ends up playing this extremely pivotal role in the investigation and ultimately influencing the case in a very significant way later on. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Let's go back to this, what you said about the tabloids and the photography, because if, you know, if anybody who's seen like a kind of archaic newspaper of New York in that time, you know, the New York Times or papers like it, you know, they were about as wide as like a refrigerator, and, you know, you would open them with these giant, there's just text, gigantic text. sea yeah. of text, yeah, sea of text, right? So suddenly to have something that's more manageable in your hands, full of photos, kind of wild. And and by the way, while all this is happening with the, your character, Philip Payne and, and the Daily News, you know, in comes William Randolph Hearst to compete, right? And uh, there's this great quote in your, in your piece. Um, he says, uh, you say here, the Daily Mirror, which is the name of Hearst's uh, competitive paper, was positively vulgar, promising readers, quote, 90% entertainment, 10% information, which yeah, is that was con- their, uh, that was their, that was their motto. That was, you know, that yeah. was their slogan. That was what they were selling yeah. themselves as. Well, that was a real revelatory quote from William Randolph Hearst, um, not only because, you know, that was the sell, but uh, that's a description of like 70% of the current media that we live in, including Fox News. So, that's hilarious. But then also there's this other one, another one that comes along called the, what is it? The, uh, the, the New York Evening Graphic. The New York Evening Graphic, which is a whole another kind of like exotic novelty that doesn't really work out, but it has to do with like taking p- real pictures of people's heads and putting them on 
illustrated imagined scenes that were scandalous and you yep. know it, this this paper got the the nickname the pornographic because yeah, of because it was also the most salacious of the, of the three it, it it kind of keyed in the the most in, in on some sort of um lascivious topics like i guess we should say but yeah. um it was completely outrageous and it was kind of the the, the also ran the third the third wheel but it, it, 1924 that's the first moment uh, you know, as as some smaller tabloids are beginning to sprout in other cities around the country, but 1924 is the first time suddenly they have you have these three tabloids essentially at, at war in in New York City, all trying to best each other and get the the biggest circulation. Right, and just as an aside, this New York uh, Daily Graphic was started by a guy named uh, Bernard McFadden. And this is one of those. I'll, great- I'll stop you right there, Bernard. His his real name is his real name is Bernard with a D, yeah. but he, he changed it to Bernard with two R's because he said yes. he later in life he said that Bernard looked too ordinary. Right. Well, I laughed out loud when I read that because that's such a classic, hilarious sort of like Gatsby, but even dumber in you know in terms of like this is how he was going to insinuate himself into society is calling himself Bernard. You know, insinuate yeah. himself uh, or change his identity, I should say. Um, and also, I see that uh, you know he had um, published something called Physical Culture, which was like like a magazine about fitness, bodybuilding. fitness magazine. Yeah, yeah it's kind yeah. of like if you if you think of like the Pecker Media Empire, right? Which it yeah. has these kind of seedy supermarket tabloids and these fitness magazines. It's kind of <laughs> Bernard McFadden was was sort of the pioneer of that. He and he was he he was a a total fitness. He became this fitness buff. He had this kind of sickly childhood and then had this epiphany as a youngster uh, as he like saw some some bodybuilding poster in in a gym or something and and he decided he wanted to look like that and he became this, you know, he's, re- he's very short, but he became chiseled like a statue. He was on the vanguard of like wackadoo health fads. He was like mm-hmm. an early anti-vaxxer. And so he started this, uh, his, his publishing empire started with, with, with this magazine, Physical Culture, but then he also branched out and developed all the, what was known as the confession magazine. So, so uh, true story, true detective, uh, these stories where people would like write in the first person and, you know, confess these, these personal That's right, yeah. anecdotes or whatever. So By he was way, a yeah. really fascinating character. Obviously there was, this was a crime decade. It was a murder decade amongst all these other obsessions that were chronicled in newspapers, competitive sports, the rise, the real, real rise of celebrity culture and movie stars and yeah. transatlantic flight, all, all these trivial obsessions in the 1920s that people obsessed over. Crime and murder is one of them, but uh, but this wasn't the first time that there were these sort of seedy, more down market newspapers that were going wild wild with that. You know, this was happening in Victorian America with with the, yeah. with the penny papers. This was this was a facet of the Hearst and Pulitzer papers at the turn of the century, the yellow, the yellow press. But I, I think this was the first time that there were publishers, as we said before, who were who were very consciously creating news as a form of entertainment, you know, and they had to compete with new mediums. Radio is coming. People are now starting to go to the movies. You know, there's, there's film. And I think that what, what Joe Patterson recognized early on in, in starting this American tabloid, which was, you know, it was inspired by the Daily Mirror in, in, in Great Britain, which had launched 20 years earlier, but he wanted people to be entertained and he wanted to make it easy for them to, to follow this stuff there, you know, they, they didn't want jumps to other pages. They, 
you know, he, he, they said in their, in their, edit, their opening editorial, you know, you can hold this newspaper without it being whisked away by the draft. So they, wa they wanted to give people this enjoyable, thrilling newspaper filled with content, reader contests and, you know, e well, everything. And, and um, it's populist in, in its core. Yeah. Right. It's absolutely populist. And, and I think that it was more, you know, I, I was on a, a podcast the other the night with this sort of true crime academic who said, well, you know, we call these things down market, but really these were, this was making news accessible to people who right. weren't as, as literate and they did market tabloids. They, Joe Patterson, he went to like working class immigrant enclaves in Manhattan and he went to subway stations and newsstands and asked what people wanted to read. It was very in tune with what like common ordinary people wanted. And, and he really tapped into that. What were the earliest tabloids in America before this particular window? So like tabloids, what, what, you know, people use that term broadly speaking to mean like trashy gutter newspaper or something yeah, yeah. like that. But, you know, in, in the 1800s, there was, there was the sun, you know, famously the sun, there was, um, uh, at, at Hearst, you know, Hearst and Pulitzer, they, they were still publishing their, their yellow newspapers from the, that were really, I think, um, forces at the turn of the century in the late 1800s and early 1900s, but that would have been Hearst's American and Evening World, um, it, what became the, the Journal American um, and Pulitzer's World. And, you know, the, there was a long history of these sorts of newspapers yeah. in, in America. And they were called, originally, they, they called them the penny papers because the innovation was, let's make these for a penny Sheep. so normal yeah. people can can buy them and we'll fill it with the type of stuff that normal people want to read. At the, at the time in, in 1800s America, if you were reading newspapers, it was all the kind of like commerce, commerce and trade, you know, and they, I think they cost like six cents or whatever. So that's kind of what came before this. And then in, in Great Britain, the, the first tabloid was, was the Daily Mirror, and that was founded by Alfred Harmsworth, uh, known as Lord Northcliffe. And that, that is still the family <laughs> that, that controls the, the, daily, the, the Daily Mail to this, this day. Um, wow. He had founded Perfect. the Daily Mail as well. So, that's, so, so, so Lord Rothermere, who is, now presides over the Daily Mail, which is really like the world's tabloid now because they, they have they've built up this massive global yeah. audience. That, that started with his forebearer, who was Alfred Harmsworth, and that's what's, what inspired the American tabloid form. So I think that you know, the genre of newspaper sensations goes back quite a long way, probably to like, you know, the mid 1830s when they were covering, uh, you know, the murder of Helen Jewett. And that was when the first official journalistic interview was said to have taken place around this sensational murder, uh, murder of this woman of the night sort of prostitute in, in 1800s New York. So uh, the tabloids, like I said, I, I think that this was just a different, a, a new medium yeah. That I think there's a through line to today that it gave us the National Enquirer. It gave us, you know, this is this is the culture that gave us court TV. This gives us reality TV. We, we think of we think of all the junk in our social media feeds, just this clickbait. I mean, this is all in the in the same cauldron of of, right. of tabloid culture that goes back to the 1920s. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of something that John Huey used to say. He was the head of Time Life for a time, or Time Inc. I should say. Uh, you remember him. He was the editor of Fortune, yeah. and he kind of rose in the company. And uh, he was a delightful Southern gentleman, still alive, still. He is a delightful Southern gentleman. But he used to say, uh, as a kind of principle to reach readers, put the food down where the dog can eat it. 
<laughs> you know, so sometimes you have to, uh, you know, reach down. Uh, it was the sort of thought. But like you said, there's like uh, there was obviously a great financial incentive to reach as many people as humanly possible. And the Daily News, as you describe in this, had a million, you know, readers yeah, in 1920. It, 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 it hit a million readers. I don't remember the exact year, but it became it was a flop at first. Um, and but after a few months, it, it just started building circulation and just kept going and going and going. And at first, Hearst and other publishers, but especially Hearst, they were dismissive. Tab they thought this tabloid thing was going to be a fad. And, you know, Hearst had had toyed with the idea of starting one, but he didn't. And he was the news, he was the media kingpin of the day. He's very combative and, and, and competitive and pugilistic. And mm. he had been already in a newspaper war with Joseph Medill Patterson, who founded the news in Chicago. You know, the, the Tribune overtook a Hearst paper in Chicago. So this was really like Hearst needed to he needed to come back swinging and the the daily news was just so far ahead he can they can that the mirror can never quite get there but even yeah. the mirror i mean the, the daily mirror also when it when it you know the course of my book it hits like around 500,000 and that's still yeah, trouncing most other newspapers in the country you know yeah um, and so I just want to mention, we're not going to get that deep into it, but, you know, the core of your book is also a murder scandal in which you follow it partly through these newspapers and how they cover it and how they become involved in it. And just, you know, just to, if you people will go to the vanityfair.com and see Joe's excerpt, there's a whole hilarious sequence where Philip Payne sort of sets up a, a seance. He sets up a seance. Literally a seance. He sets yes. up a seance. Right. To get a, a guy he thinks may have done the murder to confess, and then they have like cops and reporters behind a, behind like a curtain waiting to pounce in case the guy confesses to the. I mean, imagine something like. I mean, I guess you could say that like you know, twenty twenty did cut stuff like this. You know, where they would uh, have a secret camera on somebody and you know wait for them to indict themselves on camera, right? But this was all much more cloak and dagger. I mean, this was really like they they kind of railroad this this kind of dim. He, he's actually he's, he's he's the he's the cuckolded widower. And they find out that like many people in America at the time, he had come to be a believer in spirit. There's a big spiritualism revival at the time, you know, and um, from socialites down on to just everyday people, Arthur Conan Doyle was going through on lecture tours. He was a big believer in it. So they find the, the, the Phil Payne, when he was still at the Daily News, they find out that, that Jim Mills believes in ghosts and they try to, they lure him to an apartment in Manhattan, he has another. He has one of his female reporters dress up as as an oracle, and there's there's incense. There's, you know, they have a fake sort of um, Swami like character that that answers the door. I mean, all sorts of props. And and behind the curtain, literally, the the, the investigators, they, they just had nothing to lose at this point because the case was just at totally stagnant. And they 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 were like, sure, do you have our blessing to do this? And you know, from the historical. Um, the, the very obscure historical accounts that I found about about this seance, you know, Phil Payne and a detective and a, two detectives and a stenographer are hiding behind this curtain while this while they're this this fake medium is like bringing this guy's dead wife <laughs> back into yeah. the room, you know. But yeah. so I think that this is also the this is like the origin of like this kind of stunty, really over the top tabloid journalism, and the standards of the day for journalism were already you know, not the same as they, as they are in our, in our modern world, but especially for the tabloids of the day. I mean, it was, it was a, a more a lawless. Yeah. It was no holds barred. No holds barred.
Well, listen, this is a book that everybody should pick up, Blood and Ink, Scandalous Jazz Age Double Murder That Hooked America on True Crime. Joe, before we let you go, we, we must bring up this other tabloid publisher that you wrote about this week, former publisher of Us Weekly. He may have published some other magazines. I can't remember, but his name's Jan Winner. Uh, tell us about, uh, you know, you interfaced with him last week and uh, downloaded some information from him. Um, what was your take on uh, Jan Winner? You, Joe Hagen, wrote a very well-critically-received and deeply, deeply reported and researched biography of Jan that he supremely hated. Um, you guys had a big falling out. So, yes. uh, you know, Jan Wenner now has his own memoir. He's telling his, his own story about the history of Rolling Stone, which you also chron- and his life, which you also chronicled in your book, Sticky Fingers, which, you know, caused this big media controversy a few years ago. So, you know, he's a big character in, in, the, in our world and in, in, in a player in the, in the media that we cover. And, and we, you know, they were pitching us an interview with him. I, I had been interested in doing one and I tried to be the neutral, impartial <laughs> journalist. But obviously the big disclosure is here is, you know, I, my, I'm my friend <laughs> yeah. Joe and colleague Joe Hagen wrote this book that, that you hate. So, so we, we talked and tried to stay away from relitigating this episode because that would just not, you know, we sure. know what he thinks about it, know what your feelings are. But I wanted to ask him because, you know, your book wasn't the first time that he had decided to collaborate with a biographer. But, you know, but in terms of like, as terms of, it seemed like Jan, there was an interest from him started going back to the early 2000s in having his story told and written. So there, so the, by the time you came along, you know, this is the, went the farthest and it was the only one that actually went to publication. But I, I said to him, you know, clearly we, there was these two times where you kind of like, you know, pulled out. I said, why didn't if it's it, why didn't you just write it in the first place? It seems like mm-hmm. you probably weren't going to be happy with with the book unless you wrote it. And you know why didn't you just write it? And he said, well, you know, I mean, he said, well, I'm too lazy, you know, and, and I and I was busy with the magazine that you know that that was where all his energy was, and he and he wanted someone who could who could do it. So I thought that was I mean that was one of the things I was I was curious about. Um, but we talked about I mean I have to say I enjoyed we had a, a 90 minute conversation started on Zoom, but then we ran out of our time on Zoom. So we, we, we jumped on FaceTime. He, he, he was a fun interview and, you, and you've, you've spent a lot of time with him and, and sure. talked to him um, and probably have some degree of affection for him still. And I, you know, he, he gives good, he gives good quotes. He didn't, I didn't feel like he was, you know, any of his responses were, were, were bullshitty. Maybe you read some of them and you, you, you might disagree, but it was a good rocking interview. And we also talked about the dissolution of, of his media empire, which was, sure. you know, uh, didn't have a kind of a tabloid component with Us Weekly, but also had a very, you know, august uh, history with Rolling Stone and, and also Men's Journal, these high quality journalism magazines. And that all came crashing down in, in, the two, in, in 2017, right around the time your book's coming out, right around right. Rolling Stone's 50th anniversary. And I wanted to know, you know, what, what that was like. And he had all these, you know, kind of this cascade of really serious near-death health. His health yeah. was kind of spiraling out of control at the same time, these major surgeries. I, was, I, I wondered if, you know, the, the emotional stress of what was going on with the business exacerbated the, the, his physical conditions. Oh, absolutely. Said, absolutely. Well, he said, but, no, he said, listen, I was just, I smoked for a million years and I was not healthy. And <laughs> the bell just tolled for me was what well, he said. Yeah, but he, well, he can say that. But the stress of knowing that the clock was ticking on Rolling Stone, he knew that he had to sell it or do something, 
sell some of his properties off to deal with it right as the 50th anniversary is coming, right as my book was coming out. There was a lot coming around the bend for him. And he's not somebody that may have consciously been thinking about it. He's the kind of guy that would it would all be buried under the surface and then affect his body, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I talk about this at the end of my book because when I wrote the paperback version, I was able to review some of what had happened since between the two uh, hardcover and softcover, and a lot of this was going on. He was selling. He had sold by the time I published the softcover. Soft and it all happened pretty fast, too. He sold Us Weekly a few months later. That you know, right. It was time for Men's Journal. And then he writes in the book about how it's, uh, it sounds like his son, Gus, who was, who was kind of taking up the mantle, and his chief financial officer basically came and said, you know, it's time. We got, you got to do this. And he then struggled with letting go because part of the deal was that Gus was going to stick around yeah. and be a part of the new Rolling era of Rolling Stone under Jay Penske, who bought it and still owns it today. And Jan writes in the book and talks about w with me as well that, you know, it's like I I I'm the old guy, I'm the odd man out. And he had to deal with that. And Gus and Jay start making changes that, that he doesn't like. And he's sitting there and kind of like thinks they're doing some of the wrong things. And, you know, that was definitely something that he, he talked about being a tough thing. Well, the last chapter of his book is the most interesting to me. When I read the rest of his book, it was, oh yeah, I've heard this story before. I've heard this story before, and you know, flip, 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 because obviously I had heard these stories before, whether it had to do with Mick Jagger or John Lennon, you know, his version of how it went down. But, you know, good luck. That's great. But the last chapter was uh, the most interesting because it dealt with his decline and dealing with depression and dealing with physical decline. And he seems to have kind of some quasi-spiritual, you know, awakening as a result, or he just tries to describe one in the book. Um, I don't know how much I buy that, really. He seems like the same old Jan Wenner to me, but but that was the most interesting to me. But of course, because it's the part that comes after my book was ended, so it was the only part that was novel to me. That was his exclusive, is what you're saying. That. Yeah, yeah. To me, that was the, you know, you could just read my book and then read the last chapter of his and you'd get a full uh, story. But in any event, um, well, I, we have to uh, wind down here. But uh, I just, as a, uh, for fun, I thought I would cue up a little something here from my book to read to you, Joe, and just get your quick uh, reaction uh -oh. shot. <laughs> I'm going to get your reaction shot. Because I know at the top of his of your piece with him. He had some opinions about Trump and he's got political views and so forth. But um, around the time Trump was coming into power, into office in 2016, Trump uh, was on the cover of Rolling Stone. And um, it was called uh, Taking Trump Seriously or Trump Seriously. You know, it was like a, a look at him as an actual candidate. And um, But also around that time, uh, you know, there were a lot of, I should say, people observing at the time of Trump's rise, how much Trump and Jan were alike. Now, I knew this had to, to stick in Jan's craw when he read my book, but it came directly from like some of his oldest friends who would and call you say, me. And you, and you put this in the book. This was this is in, in your book, just to listeners know. Yeah, people would call me and they would say, God, whenever I hear Trump, it sounds like that's Jan talking because that's how Jan talks. They mean personality-wise, not necessarily politically. His ego, you know, and his kind of like uh, rawness. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I just thought I'd read you this uh, little paragraph here. Um, so uh, when Wenner ordered up a Rolling Stone feature on Donald Trump and his, quote, narcissistic personality disorder, the staff had to shake their heads and laugh. Wenner took issue with the idea that he himself was a clinical narcissist, self-centered, egotistical, yes, but not beyond that. 
Wenner, of course, was a pioneer of the age of narcissism. He made his generation feel good about itself, righteous, independent, young. He also hung celebrities like sides of beef in his showroom window. The man adored fame, and so he saw the rise of Trump as he did everything else in life as an opportunity. While Matt Taibbi railed about the, quote, insane clown president in Rolling Stone, Wenner was splashing very beautiful photos of Trump's first family on in Us Weekly. First Lady Melania Trump was another soap star in the weekly serial. It was what everybody's curious about, Wenner responded. Our sales almost doubled the three or four issues that we did that. And of course, shortly after that, he sold it to David Pecker, a Trump supporter, right? But, uh, you know, the, I think that Wenner in that moment that I just elucidated there had a lot in common with your uh, Philip Payne and the people of his era of that 20s tabloid era, which they're thinking in that terms, in those terms, you know. Yes, Jan may have political views, but at the end of the day, he was a publisher and he wanted to sell some copies of Us Weekly. Yeah. And so he put As, Trump, You know, and yeah. Devil's Advocate, I mean, are, a lot of media was, was guilty of that, right, at the time. Sure. I mean, this oh, was absolutely. The whole, yeah. This is the whole, you know, thing with people still you know, have, the, have a be in their bonnet about, about CNN, you know, all the free yeah. airtime they gave him. I mean, um, you know, I think that's, I think that's a, a, a very eloquent and interesting paragraph. Um, and, you know, I wonder how much the same could be said of other sure. publishers, this kind of cynical, you know, it's all fun and games until this guy's elected president, right? And then everyone is kind of like in, in horror, what, what have we done? That's right. Well, listen, and I'm uh, my whole thing with Jan is that he's he's a contradiction, right? And uh, a lot of complicated, interesting people are contradictions, right? So Jan is a kind of cynical publisher, and he could be idealistic in the pages of Rolling Stone about the rock and roll generation and what have you, but he doesn't want to have to confront those contradictions. And uh, that's what a biography can help illuminate that a memoir cannot, right? I love memoirs. And uh, I love reading it from the point of view of a person, even if I think that they're spinning it to their advantage, which, of course, many times they are. But to just close down here, I will just say that um, everybody should read Blood and Ink and then go read uh, your Jan Wenner interview. And you're going to get a real vision of uh, the through line from 1920s tabloid to the modern day and the end of a certain print era as we enter another kind of tabloid era, which is the Internet. And thank you, Joe Pompeo, for coming on Inside the Hot. Thank you. Thank you.